Hi, y'all. Welcome back to PG Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. If you listen to the podcast on the regular, you know that I'm a professor, although I rarely get specific about my teaching work life on here since the podcast can get pretty personal and also political, so I try to keep them separate. Well, I'm keeping it professional and not so separate today as I'll be interviewing someone that I know my students and colleagues will be interested in, Tommy Scanlon. Tommy is an artist whose practice centers on tapestry. Her work has been shown both nationally and internationally. She's received numerous awards as an artist and educator, including the Lifetime Achievement Award in Craft Education presented by the Georgia Art Education Association. She is a founding member of Tapestry Weaver South and a life member of the Southern Highland Craft Guild. This year, she's taught tapestry workshops at Aramont School of Arts and Crafts and has upcoming tapestry workshops in 2019 at the Penland School of Crafts and the John C. Campbell Folk School in North Carolina, as well as at the Aya Fiber Studio in Florida. She was appointed Professor Emerita in 2002 at the University of North Georgia, where she taught art for 28 years. Well, technically, she taught at North Georgia College and State University for all of those years, but in 2013, North Georgia College merged with Gainesville State College to become the University of North Georgia, or UNG, as it's known around here. UNG now has four campuses with around 19,000 students and also continues the North Georgia College tradition as one of six senior military colleges in the United States. I now teach on the same campus where Tommy taught, the one that used to be North Georgia College in the tiny town of Dahlonega, Georgia, tucked into the awe-inspiring North Georgia mountains. For those of you not familiar, Dahlonega's got a quaint little downtown square with an old courthouse in its center that's now a gold museum. Since Dahlonega was the site of the first major U.S. gold rush, predating the California rushes by 20 years, according to the city's website. Anyway, it's a cute town. Ask me about it sometime. I have recommendations. I eat out more there than I do in Athens, where I actually live. But anyway, don't get me sidetracked here talking about chocolate shops and whatnot. I met up with Tommy at her studio late on a Monday afternoon after my classes were over. Her studio is walking distance from the campus and the square in a lovely old home. We discuss the history and growth of the UNG art department and her personal path as an educator, which are very intertwined, before getting into her current studio practice. Even though Tommy is a local legend, I had never had more than a cursory conversation with her before chatting with her for this episode. I really enjoyed getting to know her a little, and I hope you all will as well. Check it out. I've been in Dahlonega since, uh, lived in Dahlonega since 1978 or so, but I started teaching at the university, which was then North Georgia College, in 1972. I started school here, in fact, in 1965. I'm from Blairsville. Wow. And so I came to North Georgia, and there was no art department at the time. I wanted to major in art and wound up at the University of Georgia after a couple of years. And you did your undergrad degree at UGA in art ed? ed. Art ed. <clears throat> and so what made you decide to do that instead of get a studio art degree? Well, I came to North Georgia to be um, in school on a teacher scholarship. There was a state teacher scholarship available at the time for kids from high schools um, to go into the education field in Georgia after they graduated. It paid the tuition essentially and so that was needed our family couldn't really afford to my father had died when my mother was 38 and I was 12 and my sister was four Wow! so she raised us alone and uh, always uh, you know college was always the goal for both of us and so when I was able to get the Georgia State Teacher Scholarship it was called at the time um, I had to major in education, 
So I came to North Georgia, majored in education, but I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And Bob Owens, who uh, wound up founding the art department in 1971, was teaching art uh, education classes for the education uh, school of education, it was called then, or the Department of Education. And so I had to take an art ed class, got to know him, and then I took every studio class that he bit by bit was offering at um, North Georgia. And I went into his office one day, just practically in tears, and said, you know, Mr. Owens, I want to be an artist, but I've got to be an education major because that's the way I could go to school. He said, why don't you transfer to the University of Georgia and major in art education? I said, art education? What's that? <laughs> never heard of it. Had never had art classes before I took the classes with him at North Georgia. So he opened up the world for me because I applied and got accepted and uh, spent my last two undergraduate years at uh, UGA in art ed. So I'm dying to know what UGA was like in that at that time it in was, the '60s. Yeah, it was it was good. I was, um, you know, some friends of mine were were uh, very much into um, smoking pot and uh, doing <laughs> protests, and I just had my head down and going to class and uh, vicariously living through their their fun times. But it it was sometimes kind of wild and crazy there. And was there a lot of, so they, was there a lot of crossover between the art students and the art ed students? Did you take similar classes? Uh, yeah, we took, the studio classes were the same. Mm -hmm. They didn't have separate um, studio classes for the art ed majors, but uh, the art ed people also then took the theory, art education theory classes. I'm curious, um, you know, since we deal a lot with gender in this podcast, I never wanted to be a teacher because it was one of the careers that was available for women. I felt like it was a, a woman's career and, you know, like mm -hmm. being a secretary or something. Right. I didn't want to do that. Right. Um, did you, when you went to school, was it mostly women in the art ed program or did you notice like a gender, any kind of gender thing with the studio majors versus the art ed majors? I think that there probably were. Mm -hmm. I, I really wasn't um, that aware of that kind of gender separation. But mm -hmm. as I think back, Probably there were more women, although there were some men in the art ed program as well. There were. Yeah. And when you were majoring in art ed, were you planning on, I noticed you went on and you got a master's in art ed. Right. And Same then, kind of situation. It was financial <clears throat> because of the school system I was teaching in. I could get my graduate um, uh, degree program paid for if I committed to teach the following year. In um, in the same school system. And what was the what grades were you teaching? I was teaching high school. Okay. Gainesville City Schools. And how was that? It was great. I, mm -hmm. I liked it a lot. I found out I uh, didn't want to be a teacher, uh, so I went into art education because I had to be in an education field. And it turns out that I uh, loved being a teacher <clears throat> of art. I just couldn't think of myself as being a third grade teacher right. teaching. Uh, kids to you know learn about math and learn about reading and history and all that kind of stuff. I thought it was interesting myself, but I could I just couldn't see myself doing that. And so, how long were you there teaching in Gainesville? Uh, three years. And then you went back to school to get an I MFA. I started. Uh, well, let's see. I started my Master of Art Ed um, during my first year teaching high school. I, I took a, a um, spring um, class in the evening and then started back in the summers. And that was um, at UGA? At UGA. So I was commuting in the summer, teaching in the academic year at school. And the summer of 73 was when I was finally uh, wrapping up the, uh, the Master of Art Ed at Georgia. And I was able to be hired as an assistant, teaching assistant at North Georgia because I knew Bob Owens, because he was my um, first art teacher, and because he stayed a mentor to me all through those years. I was at Georgia, and then when I was teaching at um, Gainesville, stayed in touch with him, and he was just beginning the art 
program in 1971. It got approval of the um, art ed, um, pardon me, the art program, art degree. So he had been teaching art classes, but there was no official degree up until that point. And was it just him? He was the only teacher? He was the only teacher. Wow. And how many? So in 1971, he hired Wynne Cronell. And in 72, he hired me. So there were three of us teaching visual art, uh, Bob, um, Wynn, and me. He formed the department as a fine arts department. That was the way he could, um, I think, get approval through academic activities. So he uh, had music as well as theater and visual art. Uh, There was a music ed degree at the time, an art ed degree, and believe it or not, we had a craft marketing degree. Craft marketing? Craft marketing. So what would you do with a craft marketing degree? Well, the thought was that you would go into um, the world of gallery or sales Mm -hmm. or making your living as a a studio potter or a studio craftsman of some sort. Did they have craft fairs back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So that was a thing, One of the oldest uh, craft fairs, in fact, was called Plum Nelly. Okay. That was held in Georgia, uh, over near um, Plum out of Georgia, nearly into Tennessee, I think is the way. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of on that little ridge of western Georgia uh, in the lower part of Tennessee. So what happened to that degree? That's interesting. Um, it morphed into the um, art marketing degree, it was then called. Okay. So we did not have a studio art uh, major uh, until a number of years later when, you, when a student could get just a studio degree in art. So the, the thought was, uh, I guess the way Bob could sell it to the Academic Activities Committee was that these are two um, paths that students can find jobs. They can find jobs as a business person themselves, as a craftsperson, mm-hmm. or they can find an art ed um, degree um, or an art ed teaching position in a school. And then how long were you teaching there before you decided to get your MFA? Um, I knew that the MFA was needed as a terminal degree, mm-hmm. and um, even though I had the master's degree, I wasn't, I couldn't be tenure track or couldn't do the promotion route. So I um, started working on an MFA in um, about 1976, I think it was. So I, I kind of fast-tracked through graduate school as, as much as I could and as I could get funds together. Um, I took a number of uh, classes in the summer. I was able to get my MFA from East Tennessee State, and at the time I could do, I guess, what might be similar to a low residency program. I could take classes in the academic year, go up two or three times during the semester um, for critique and um, further instruction of you know, what's coming Wow, next. so you were still teaching I here teaching. while you were getting your yep. MFA? Yeah. That's incredible. It was it was tough, but, you know, I was in my 20s and yeah. so <laughs> wasn't married at the time. The things so. we do. I know, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it really was very challenging, but I was learning things for the MFA that I was then teaching. I was teaching, learning about things to teach that I would then carry into the MFA and study a little bit further. So it was kind of back and forth. And And what was your emphasis in MFA? Uh, Weaving and drawing and painting. Weaving, drawing, and painting. Yeah. That's interesting. Primarily drawing, but but weaving. Not tapestry weaving, which I've turned out to be a tapestry weaver, but it was, um, was... floor loom weaving and exploring as many things as I could learn about. So I was pretty the... much a self-taught weaver. Oh, okay, that's yeah. what I was going to ask yeah. you. So Even had you I done that before then? Weave, yeah, I was already a member of Southern Highland Craft Guild in weaving when I started the MFA program in uh, weaving. And so how old were you when you started weaving? Like... Um, I started weaving when I student taught mm-hmm. and my student teacher wanted us to do a project and she taught me how to do a little cardboard loom mm-hmm. so I learned how to do a little cardboard loom of course I'd, I'd done uh, potholder looms when right. I was 12 years old but um, so yeah just uh, I began 
the weaving program at North Georgia, teaching myself to weave and <laughs> figuring out, you know, what kind of equipment do I need and uh, ordering it and then bit by bit taking workshops. I, I learned a lot on my own, but I learned a lot through going to workshops. So a lot of the weaving equipment that we still have at UNG is stuff that you ordered? Yes, yes. Or wow. stuff that I wrangled somehow. We had uh, <laughs> uh, um, one university in the system was uh, closing their weaving program, so we were able to do a transfer of funds, and we brought the equipment here, and some funds from us went to them. Uh, we had at least two different estate donations of uh, people who knew we had a weaving program the, uh, someone in the family died and left a loom or two or uh, yarn or books or things like that so the we've got a really good weaving um, uh, studio we've got lots of equipment we have a pretty deep uh, resource in library kinds of things but almost all of that except for some newer looms that Joe Marie's been able to purchase um, came through um, uh, hit or miss and putting it together. So I don't want to spend too much time talking about UNG, but you are like legend in these parts for how how long you were at UNG um, uh, before we get into talking about your work. So you continued to teach there for 28, 28 years, years yeah. and were the head of department for a long portion three, of that time. Three, my last three years. Oh, your last three years. Last three years, yeah. Okay. And how many people were in the department when you were the head of the department? Um, it was still fine arts department at the time, so by that point, I think we had maybe eight or nine full-time faculty. We did not have as many part-time faculty as later, um, although we could have used them. We couldn't get funding uh, for more than one or two people each semester. Um, so I guess there were eight full-time faculty in uh, music and visual art. Oh, that's including music. Mm -hmm. That's including music. There were wow. four full-time visual art. I don't faculty. even know how many we have now. Around 30. Is it 30? Yeah. So said. it's growing yeah, very fast. Yeah, Pam's been doing a great job. Uh, I think one of the best things that ever happened to the program was when the music and the visual art were made into two separate departments. Mm -hmm. I think it was has been healthier for both um, both departments. And when did that happen? have to ask Pam Sashant that. Okay. Probably, <laughs> probably about eight to ten years ago, maybe. I'm getting a lot of good history on the place that I work at. Yeah. Out of <laughs> well, listen, it is really, it has grown so much uh, since Pam's been department head. She's, I think she's really a, a great visionary and a great um, supporter and advocate for um, you folks. Whether, mm -hmm. whether you realize it or not. I'm sure yeah, you do. do. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I've, I and Bob Owens, who unfortunately passed away at an early age in 2004, he would just, I'm sure he's, you know, if there's heaven, he's up there beaming at uh, how the art department is so healthy and vital and uh, functioning now. Yeah. And so, he really is why I'm doing what I'm doing. He, he was a mentor to a lot of people, inspiration and a mentor. Yeah, you need those mentors. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should ask you some teaching advice, but I don't even know where to go with that, like while I have you here. Yeah, no, I don't know. The, the, everything I know about teaching, I learned from Bob Owens. Yeah. And that was to not be afraid to say you don't know something is, mm -hmm. is one thing. And, <clears throat> but when you say, I don't know that, um, don't go back in the next day without having tried your best to find out and hope that the student that you've encouraged to, you know, also maybe try to find out is trying as well. I had a hard time with that when I first started teaching, always worried that I, you know, didn't know everything. Yeah. Yeah. I struggled yeah. with that yeah. as a teacher. Well, it, you know, you're the teacher. So oh, you're, you're saying you're learning yeah, while you're on the job. Yeah, I mean, you, are. you always are. Yeah. I, I, I really do think teachers are, if I think teachers who are good learners are good teachers. Um, because if you're not learning on the job, then um, you're stumped 
right. <laughs> much of the time. You're stumped much of the time anyhow. But uh, And your students are coming to you with different things that right. they need right. every year. Right. So you yeah. you have to keep on on top of that. It's been a while since I graduated from college myself in the world. You know, I, I majored in um, photography before digital cameras. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. clearly um, I had to adapt, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. after that. And then I have a painting also. But, you right. know, the world changes and right. your students come in with new stuff every year. Right. Yeah. If you hadn't said, hmm, I don't know that about digital yet, but. Yeah. Uh, and here you are, you know, with your podcast I know, and your I microphone. Just, I'm and not afraid of the digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. You know, everything we use is our tools, and we we do process. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you're willing to just experiment and jump in and try and make mistakes and say that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, this, this. Uh, I had never done recording before I started the podcast. Mm-hmm. I had the idea for the podcast and then had to figure out how to record. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that That's is my great. modus operandi. That's great. <laughs> Just to figure it out as you go along, you right. know? Right. Yeah. So we're sitting here in your studio, which is um, in your house, it, it's right? A, it's a house. Yeah, it's and, not where we live, but it is a little house. Oh, it's not. So you don't live here. Right. This is just for studio. This is just for studio. Wow. But it is a whole house. It is. Because I was going to say, if it's not your studio, it's definitely been taken over by weaving. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, <laughs> we, we've got, um, you know, we use it when, when folks come to stay and visit. So we, we've got at least one bedroom you can walk into and use without having to move stuff around. But. So you've got lots of books in here. You walk in the front door, and you've got a lot of thread. Um, this is like a lifetime of thread accumulation happening in here. Um, and how many looms do you have? I, You know, I always have to truthfully say I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, I probably have five larger looms like these that mm-hmm. you see. But when I say I don't know, I have many frame looms that I use when I teach, although I did give a bunch of those away this year um, because my teaching career is ending next year. Um, My traveling for teaching career is ending. So I've got a lot of of little uh, portable looms. And, you know, at any time before I gave those away, I might have had 40 looms maybe. But only about five big ones. So what what is going on with your traveling teaching? My husband's retiring at the end of next year from okay. his business. And so it's going to be easier for all concerned if I'm not scheduled a year in advance somewhere with a contract to teach. So you're still teaching, like you teach at Penland? Penland, Aramont, John Campbell Folk School, um, this year, I'll, or in 2019, I'll be back at Penland for two weeks. Um, IS Studio in Stewart, Florida for a week. Uh, John Campbell Folk School for a week. And that'll pretty much be it. And I do hope to maybe in the future teach here mm-hmm. at home, in, in this home being Dahlonega, but in this studio, because I do have all these looms that I, yes. could, I could dedicate one to a student. So I wonder how that'll feel to not teach after all this time of teaching. Um, I, I, yeah, you see this mouth dropping open, <laughs> which you can't see on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know that I will really stop. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'll stop the traveling. But that kind of reminds me of when I was leaving North Georgia. There was a small little retrospective of my work at the Bob Owens Gallery before it was the renovated one that it is now. And my husband has a way of asking those um, nice interviewer questions like you do. And so, <laughs> you know, I had rambled on for a while about this and that and another thing. And so he didn't think I was getting to the point I might need to make. So he says, uh, now, Tommy, tell us what you're going to do when you retire. And so I hesitated just a few seconds and I said I think I want to teach and he said okay let me get this straight you're retiring from teaching and you want to teach (laughs) I I didn't realize how silly (laughs) 
how ludicrous that sounded, but it, it is quite different. You know, you go into a situation for five days or two weeks and you have a, uh, everybody who's there has nothing else to do but your class. Right. And they've paid money to be there and they um, want the experience not only of studying a topic, uh, but they want the experience of the school whether it's Penland or Aramont or John Campbell. Um, so it's, it's a different experience. I still have to prepare my... Um, uh, in, in fact, I probably prepare harder for the classes I do now because they are focused right. rather than saying, okay, I've got 16 weeks or 10 weeks when we're on quarter system. If I didn't cover something one day, I'll think, oh, okay, I can pick it up again tomorrow. But you right. know, if you're back, 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 back to back with days and you've got a certain amount of information you want to try to share, um, you have to be, I've found that I have to be pretty organized about that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, when you're an artist and a teacher, you know, I don't, I'm never going planning to retire from being an artist uh -huh. right so I right. think it just becomes very intertwined yeah at some point like I, I know my teaching feeds my art mm -hmm. and vice versa mm -hmm. um, I, I fantasize about taking breaks from teaching mm -hmm. but I do think it would be difficult to completely give up right when you've kind of structured your whole life that way right. well I think if you enjoy the teaching aspect of it and the excitement that you see students have mm -hmm. um, about the same thing you're passionate about. Yes. Then how, why wouldn't it be hard for you to give that up? Right. Because they're feeding you in a way, just Absolutely. like you're feeding them, um, I would think. For the second half of our conversation, we focused more on Tommy's studio practice. I started off by asking her if she had a favorite loom. Well, a loom is just a um, thing to keep the string tight. Mm -hmm. And on the kinds of looms I'm using with tapestry right now, I'm using upright looms or high warp looms. And so the loom itself is pretty much like the looms you see in the weaving studio if you could turn it horizontally. It's got a beam at the top that extra warp is wound onto. Uh, at the bottom, I've got a beam that I wind up the woven cloth onto. I have treadles that can open the shed. Um, the difference is with this kind of loom is that I'm not sh throwing a shuttle from one side to the other. Um, uh, and in tapestry, you're only weaving um, uh, color where you want the color. So you have wefts that go back and forth in small areas rather than covering the whole distance. And these are all of your different colors that are hanging down here yeah, that you're using? Yeah. These, I um, almost never use a single color. Um, uh, the size that I use, I, I use at least a double strand, but I almost never use the same two colors. Um, in the double strand. I like the variety that you get mm. with the color when you combine um, combine colors on the bobbins. These are called bobbins. Mm -hmm. And so even though it looks kind of striped here, when I weave this, those two slightly different colors in value and also intensity are gonna shift and change their position so that I'm gonna see uh, an effect that's almost almost like if you were using colored pencils back and forth and sort of scribbling them into each other and not caring how they laid. Right. Um, so there's a little bit of chance in there. Yeah, there's, there is a little bit of chance in there. And I try to um, eliminate as much chance as I can. <laughs> but at the same time, I, you know, in my judgment of, will this color uh, work? I have to weave it in a little ways, and if it works okay, then I keep on going. 
Um, I'm not trying to replicate this painting that I'm working as my design image, but I'm trying to be um, uh, inspired by it, I guess, mm -hmm. or, or informed in some ways about the kinds of things that I saw when I made the painting. Um, I've done several, uh, I think it's four pieces now. This, this is either the fourth or the fifth, where the background is essentially white, even though it's not really white. It's, mm -hmm. you know, natural color and light gray and uh, bleached white and thin threads and thick threads. But one of the things that one of my tapestry teachers pointed out is that if a weaver wants to place a shape in a field of white, the weaver has to make the field of white. <laughs> you can't, like a painter could paint a leaf on a white canvas, right. and there would be the leaf. Well, I'm kind of getting a similar effect, except I'm having to make the background as I'm making the, the positive. I notice well. even in your painting, you painted the white. Yeah. But rather than just leave the white of the yeah. paper, um, yeah. which does give you some of the same kind of shadow and, right. and a little bit of uh, chance that like you have going on in the weaving. Yeah. So when you did this particular weaving, we're looking at it's a, it looks like a few autumn leaves here, um, and you have a large scale, like maybe five foot tall painting over there. Did you start with a large painting? Is that what you started with, or did you do smaller sketches? Mm -mm. No. No, I did uh, this this piece that's the next to be worked on. Um, I did, I think it was about six or eight large um, on unstretched canvas mm -hmm. um, paintings using acrylic and um, charcoal and graphite and any number of uh, things when I was at a residency at the Lillian Smith Center mm -hmm. two years ago. So I, I was there for two weeks. I would I had access to um, a space. I could um, staple up the canvas and I would walk around. It was about this time of the year. It was in October. Um, so I could walk around, find leaves, and bring them back into the studio, pin them up beside me when I was working and then just work large. And when I work on things like this, I work very much in flux. I usually start with a um, very soft, large charcoal drawing, um, looking, drawing big lines, and then I take uh, water and a spray bottle and spritz the drawing so it all runs. Mm -hmm. And then I'll uh, draw again with charcoal, looking again, not trying to replicate the lines that I drew before, but, you know, looking, responding, spritz again. So that goes through several steps of um, look, respond, change, look, mm -hmm. respond, change. In the meantime, I might be putting in some uh, gesso back over lines uh, or just white paint. Depends on whichever it is I happen to put my brush down in. I'm not a purist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these things, this kind of white background, although this one isn't white, um, all of these started sort of in this way, this gessoed unstretched canvas stapled up with lots of marks working in flux layering um, layering and layering and layering until I feel like the image is sort of shaped the way I want it and then I start doing things within it uh, detail wise in a in a pretty loose um, sort of way I got uh, quite interested in pinning those things up on the wall uh, the shadows that were then made, which mm -hmm. are certainly not realistic shadows as you would see them out in the on the ground. Right. But it's um, and they don't necessarily even they're not even necessarily accurate, you know, as far as what where's the light source. But the shadow and the um, as negative and the object as positive or the shadow is positive and the object is negative. Those, those kinds of things are, are kind of interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So 
and then you have this cartoon that's behind right. your tapestry as you're working. How do you get this cartoon from your paintings? Um, there are several ways that you can do that. Um, if if the cartoon's exactly the same size, I can use a piece of uh, acetate that's large enough. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I've even gone to like uh, the um, Home Depot or Walmart, wherever I can buy um, clear vinyl oh. and just get it a roll. Well, this part. is something that I've been struggling with because I haven't been able to find large tracing paper. Yeah, yeah, it's just a... get uh, vinyl. Vinyl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then use Sharpie on it. That's a good idea. And uh, you can use transfer paper then if you want to, mm -hmm. to get it back onto canvas. Um, so it, it depends. That that might be a way I did it. This this one is close in size to that, but it's just slightly smaller. Mm -hmm. So I took a digital photo of this, put it in my computer, and projected it. Okay. And then redrew it again onto the um, layout paper, or the um, plotter paper. Mm-hmm. And this is just, uh, I'm not drawing every shape that I have within the um, uh, original painted image. I'm trying to give myself enough that I know will be weaverly. And that's another thing I have to think about, that I'm not replicating this painting. I'm trying to make a weaving that's based on it, but I don't want to try to copy it. Right. Um, I'm not that good a weaver, first off, but my, my work... I don't believe that. Well, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> um, the, the closeness of my warp threads is pretty far apart. So it's just, it's just like a pixel. I've got eight threads in every inch here. Mm -hmm. So I've got a pretty coarse um, uh, uh, weave set to really do a lot of those intricate details. So I have to simplify. And I think... From experience, I still have to put it in, sometimes take it out, but experience will begin to tell you what you can weave and what you can't. And I know some shapes, I'm just going to have to, you know, make a change. It maybe looks like that here, but I know when I weave that, it's going to have to come over and go up and go over and go up. It's going right. to be a stair step instead. And so you started this whole series of paintings at the residency. How long ago was that? Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Have you been working uh, with just this series for that long? Yeah. Wow. I've woven um, one, two, three, four. This is the fifth one based on it. And how long will it take you to finish this one? Um, hoping I'll finish it this year. <laughs> I started it in March, but oh, I've, wow. had, uh, I've had some detours along the way, and I've still got some detours coming up that are going to keep me um, away from the loom. But so you see where I am in the fourth leaf. So I'm about almost the three quarters point. Uh, these red marks across are just kind of markers to give me some sense of where I am and also to help me keep track of level. Um, I stitch the cartoon on these big running stitches that uh -huh. you see here to keep it as close to where I'm weaving as possible. Right. So those stitches don't stay at, oh, right. Right now I need to stitch right here, for instance, and I need to stitch up here to get that paper a little closer up. Um, so that that particular train went off on another track. So six, like it, I was asking how long it takes, so it could be six oh, months yeah. or more. Yeah, yeah. And when you're working, it's very quiet in here, mm -hmm. Do you, and this is a very time-consuming process. Mm -hmm. Do you listen to music while you're working? Mm -hmm. And or podcasts. You, and podcasts. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and sometimes just quiet. Um, sometimes there will be areas that I'm working on, I really, really have to concentrate. I can't. Mm -hmm. What kind of anything. podcast do you like? I have to ask. Oh, well, <laughs> right now one of my favorites is Wild Thing. Oh, I don't have it. Yeah, it's, to that. A, it's, a, uh, it's about Bigfoot. Oh. Yeah, you should look it up. Okay. Yeah. Um, I like Serial. I like Criminal. Oh. I like uh, Case Files. I like. It's um, a little mystery. Yeah, a little mystery, murder, mayhem kind mm -hmm. of stuff. It's, and. Um, and Peachy Keen. <laughs> Did you listen to that one about the guy from Alabama that was uh, published? I think the same people that did Serial. Mm -hmm. What was yeah. that one called? Uh, oh, it was like a, 
shit town or yep, something shit like town. that. Yes, I did. did what do you think about that one? I, it was, it, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I listened to the whole thing. I mean, it was uh, interesting. Up I'm and always Vanished interested. is another one. Yeah. That was a good mystery one. And it was in the South. Yeah. Where they were in Alabama, right? Mm-hmm. Up yeah. and Vanished. South yeah, Georgia. South Georgia. Mm-hmm. Oh, that might be interesting to me, yeah. too. I went to high school in South Georgia. Did you? In Albany. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. One of our art faculty uh, was from Albany. Oh. Hank Margison. Do you know oh, I Hank? Didn't, I, I've heard a lot about him yeah. through different faculty and, right. and um, alumni, mm-hmm. but um, I have never met him. I yeah. did not know he was from Albany. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm originally from Memphis, but I did go to gra- uh, high school in Albany. Yeah. Yeah, he was um, our fourth visual art faculty. Mm. He was hired in the probably 90s, early 90s, I would think. Yeah. So, series, you've been working on this. Are you working on another series at the same time, or do you work on multiple weavings at once? I do have multiple weavings underway. Um, I don't necessarily devote daily time to every one of them every day. Uh, I had a show at the Hudgens Center recently and had a loom set up mm-hmm. there as a demo loom. Oh, so that's fun. I had a, a piece underway for that and I'm still working on that. It's it's about three quarters done as well and it's smaller than this one is. Um, I have an ongoing uh, tapestry diary that I do mm-hmm. that I've been doing for nine years. Um, every year I do um, a year-long piece. And I saw that on your website. So you do a portion of that every day? Yeah. Every yeah. day. Every Have you day. ever missed a day? Uh, when I miss a day, I pay my penance when I come back. Okay. I, I, have, a, <laughs> I have a device of some sort um, each year. Uh, device meaning a symbolic way within the weaving that I show the number of days that I was gone. Um, and so I weave that equivalent of the days missed in whatever that symbol is uh, or uh, until I catch up and then I weave the day. So, yeah, I weave every day. Amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, it might be this much. It's not, uh, might take li- quite literally two minutes. Yeah, but it's just dedication to practice. Right, that's the and part that's that is, it. It's the practice. Yeah. yeah, that's the part that is impressive, that you do even a little bit every well, day. I brush my teeth every day. That's true. So. <laughs> but weaving I takes longer than every day. Weaving takes maybe not longer than coffee if you do a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But no, it's it's been an interesting challenge, and there are a number of people in the country who've um, begun to do it as well. Mm-hmm. Some of them inspired by my starting my own practice with it but then I've also found that uh, other people were doing similar things before that, that I'm learning about. A woman in Australia for instance did a, a daily weaving through a through the course of a breakup of a relationship so she would weave a little section every day um, over the however long it took that relationship to fall apart. So the weaving community, you mentioned somebody in Australia. Do you know a lot of other weavers around the world? Um, and how do you connect with them on the Internet? Or mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know uh, a number of tapestry weavers primarily in uh, different parts of the world. And was that, did you have those relationships before the Internet? Or was it a kind of a more recent thing where you started connecting with people around the world? Um, more through the internet, mm-hmm. through the mid, uh, from the mid 1990s onward, um, and uh, as I said, most of these are tapestry people who I've known. A woman named Kathy Todd Hooker uh, started a Yahoo group for tapestry in about 1996. Right, the beginning. Mm-hmm, the beginning, and so she began to tie people together mm-hmm. as people uh, became interested in, in, and we had quite um, lengthy, um, serious, uh, sometimes contentious discussions. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody's really posted to her list uh, or her group in a long time, 
because now Facebook and Instagram are, are two main ways that um, people uh, kind of stay connected in the tapestry group. Uh, there's a wonderful organization called American Tapestry Alliance that I'm a member of. Um, in fact, I'm one of the um, directors at large for that right now. And it's a good way to um, connect people worldwide. Uh, has a fantastic website, um, lots and lots of resources. And of course, there's some things that are members only, but there's a ton of stuff that's there for non-members. Um, and also there's a southern, uh, a regional group called Tapestry Weaver South that I was one of the founding members for in 96, I think it was. Um, that's, that's a good networking thing as well. So with email and with um, uh, uh, digital um, online newsletters and uh, that sort of thing, it's, it's easier to keep in touch with what's going on. So you said that you studied painting, drawing, and weaving. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like the, the craft and the fine art worlds have been kind of separate, and that's kind of an unusual thing to do, isn't it? I mean, or was it at that time? Do you think that there's a lot of overlap, or do you see... There is a lot of overlap for me, personally, because mm -hmm. what I try to do with my weaving is make pictures. Right. And when I was doing other weaving, I was also trying to do pic anything I could do pictorially and, and representationally, not like Annie Albers' pictorial weavings where she right. you know, took them, a weaving, put it on the wall and called it pictorial weaving, which was kind of a breakthrough for, for the, that uh, craft, fine art uh, approach. Although she, I think, later said she needed to become a print, or had to become a printmaker to get any serious uh, recognition. Do you have you found that in your career that you feel like you haven't been able to get recognition because of your craft? Because I am such a minor artist that it. Oh come I don't, on! No, I am. I really am. <laughs> I, I, I've never tried to be. I, you know, I struggle to be recognized in the craft world. Mm. So, I haven't haven't even ventured out beyond that. But, you know, as you probably well know better than I do, there's a big resurgence of interest in craft as the, uh, you know, craft is the new art form. Yeah, that's <laughs> why, you know, I'm I'm starting to bring craft into my painting. You know, I teach a craft media and right, painting class, right. which is all about painting. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, and kind of making sure that the those craft forms are not marginalized right. or treated as lesser mm -hmm. art forms as seeming uh, is is I would say pretty important in the art world today that that kind of those kind of lines are disintegrating so that's what I was wondering since you've been doing this for so long but you just kind of keep you're just like I just do what I want to just do in your own work and not really right. worrying about what's accepted and what's not accepted I I stopped worrying about that a while back because it was driving me crazy oh it was yeah yeah because you know how do you how do you see your how can anyone see me as a serious artist if if I'm not being shown in Chicago or New York or you know seeking out um, those kinds of representation in galleries that maybe a fine artist, a visual artist in painting uh, would do. I think that's changing now also that those uh, you know I lived in New York for a decade but I don't really think it's uh, it's not the same anymore like people uh, don't that's another way of discriminating against people, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. Only if you're in one of these, it, right. L.A. or New York, can you be a real artist is, right. is also a form of discrimination. Right. Yeah, against artists. I think that is collapsing a little bit. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I'm 70 years old. And so I've been working at <laughs> what I'm doing for a long time. And about, probably about 10 years ago, I thought, you know, I'm <laughs> just, uh, I'm, and with my husband's help, he says, you know, don't worry about trying to sell your work. You, you don't need to sell your work. And I, I understand that. I'm very appreciative of having uh, worked uh, as a teacher, so right. I have teacher retirement at this point in my life. And I don't say that flippantly because I know a lot of people who want to be doing their art form need to make a living somehow 
Right. And so what are the compromises they're going to have to make as far as earning their way and still keeping their passion alive for their, um, for their making, for their process, uh, whatever it happens to be, whether it's painting or um, digital or craft. And I understand that I'm in a bubble. I understand that. Well, Tommy, thanks so much for having me in yeah. your studio today and talking with me. It's Thank been you. really enjoyable. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about the class you teach that's merging the painting <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the craft. Yeah, I'll t- I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. We'll talk about it some more. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, <laughs> we did keep talking off the record. And as always, I should have left the mic on. The conversation did get a little juicier, but you know, that might have been for the best since I promised to stay fully professional for this episode. Thanks again, Tommy, for chatting and having me in your lovely studio. I can't wait to bring some of my students back to Tommy's studio soon to pick her brain while she's in her second retirement from teaching. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you want to catch one of Tommy's expert tapestry workshops before she begins her second teaching retirement, there's still little time left. She will be teaching workshops in 2019 at the Penland School of Crafts and the John C. Campbell Folk School, both in North Carolina, and at the Aya Fiber Studio in Florida. Check out her website for more info. You can find links to her website and all of these workshops, as well as pictures and other links related to our chat on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L.com. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support the podcast, you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can show some financial support through Patreon. There's a link to the Patreon page on the Peachy Keen page of my website. On the next episode, we're going to be talking to Haley Ann and Angela Bartone of the Living Melody Collective, an Atlanta collective of women artists who are doing some amazing collaborative work that focuses on community and civic engagement. Stay tuned for that episode very, very soon. Until then, I hope you all enjoy your Thanksgivings and that your days are peachy keen.